Hello and welcome to episode 15 of What's the Alternative? I'm your Tyler, you're the listener, and I'm your host, Tyler Herman, and uh, I'm back. So as I record this, it is May 16th, 2021. Um, This episode was delayed by a week, partially due to Mother's Day. Uh, I had some family, um, family event on the day that I usually record this podcast. And then I had a very, very busy week with personal life things. Um, I signed some a purchase agreement for some property that I am buying to build a house on this fall, or maybe late this fall, we'll see. Um, so had a very, very busy week and unfortunately did not really have much time to devote to the podcast. Um, but I've caught up on the news, or I've mostly caught up on the news, I should say, and I'm ready to jump right back in and... Uh, Let's talk about some electric vehicle and surrounding industry news. So this is a two-week episode this time around, so there is a lot to catch up on. Um, So buckle in and maybe uh, plan plan a break halfway through to get some coffee or or take take a restroom break. So to jump straight into it, we have a lot of electric vehicle news this time around. So the first one is just kind of an interesting factoid that plugins... Plug-in electric vehicles in general, so it's hybrids, as well as uh, fully electric vehicles, made up 10% of vehicle sales in California in quarter one of this year. So that's pretty big. 10% quite large. That's ahead of the, the kind of national average. Not terribly surprising in California. But it's cool that we're keeping this trend up in 2021, just considering all the stuff going on. So pretty cool. It's just one quarter. That's whatever. Um... But love to hear that sort of news, and it's always a bit of a feel-good story whenever we hear that. So moving straight along, we have a bit of a hot-button topic here. This is kind of an interesting one. Um, Fiat Chrysler Automotives will not need Tesla emissions credits anymore, which is a big deal. Um, That's going to cost Tesla hundreds of millions of dollars. And the long and short of it is that they have merged with the PSA Group to form a company called Stellantis. And that merger means that they don't need these credits anymore. So the kind of background here is that uh, companies have to meet certain emission standards, certain efficiency standards, and if they don't meet those standards, they can purchase credits from companies that exceed those standards. So it kind of it sets this kind of averaging across the entire industry, and companies that are doing really well can benefit from that by selling credits, and companies that are doing poorly can purchase credits to uh, reach compliance. And Fiat Chrysler Automotive has or automobiles, I believe it's called technically, um, they have been uh, out of compliance for a long time and have purchased millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of credits from Tesla uh, annually. And this is going to be a pretty big loss for Tesla. Um, these these credit sales have, they've been a make or break deal for Tesla for, for quite a bit and have really meant the difference between profitability and just scraping by. So we'll see how that affects them in the in the future. I imagine that they were smart enough to plan around this. And they know that these credits aren't going to last forever as companies get on the electrification train and just kind of get into compliance on their own. So I imagine that they've planned for this and that this won't be a huge deal for them, but it should definitely be pretty interesting to see what happens with maybe uh, their profits in the upcoming quarters as this kind of takes hold. So moving straight along, we've got really great news from Ford. Um, they finally released, released more details about their e-transit vehicle. So Ford has their, their very classic transit van that is used for all sorts of delivery purposes as well as um, public transport. It's a very, very, very popular vehicle in the kind of medium-duty space. And they mentioned not too long ago that they were going to have an electric version of it coming out soon, and we have more details about it. It's pretty exciting. Uh, the prices across the border are a little bit lower than expected, not... A huge amount lower, but still lower. 
starting around $43,000. And remember, this is a, a fleet vehicle, so this probably doesn't concern you and me quite as much, but it's pretty big news for the industry. Uh, these prices are ballpark $10,000 higher than gas models of similar kind of chassis configurations. And $10,000 is, you know, that's a, that's a pretty large marginal cost. But I kind of ran a few just scenarios looking at fuel costs and maintenance costs, and it, it looks like they can honestly offer a return on investment for people purchasing electric versus gas of in the five to five to eight year region. Um, and that's, again, really, really rough estimates. If you're using higher usage vehicles where they're driving more mileage, you get more of those benefits earlier and they can see a higher or a faster return on investment and make it attractive. But I think that, that that price point is is surprisingly in the realm of feasibility, and I think that it's going to be a great addition. Uh, we need these kind of fleet vehicles to make up the sort of last mile delivery or public transport niche that ha hasn't been very well served by by many of these fuels and efficiency gains that we've gotten on the passenger car market. So very exciting to see that um, it should go into production very, very soon, and hopefully be in a customer's hands soon thereafter. So more news from Ford, uh, they are slated to reveal their F-150 quote-unquote lightning electric pickup truck on May 19th. So that's just a couple days away as I record this. Um, we're going to get some new information. I believe there's going to be a live stream and everything, so it should be pretty exciting to watch. Uh, I think this is a big deal. They're going with the lightning branding that they are basically resurrecting from a popular F-150 model that they used to offer. I'm not much into trucks, so I don't know a huge amount about that. This seems like it's getting a little bit of a mixed reaction using the same branding, just like the Mustang Mach-E did. Um, having a Mustang that's uh, more of a crossover SUV was very polarizing for some, and I think that that is a similar situation that they're coming across with the Lightning F-150. But when it comes down to it, if they can produce a compelling vehicle, I don't think that's going to matter in the long term. I think that people are going to buy it, and it's going to be very exciting. So I'm going to be tuned in for that, and I guarantee you we're going to talk about it next week. Uh, I just hope that they give us good stuff to talk about. Moving along, continuing with the truck theme, the Rivian R1T electric pickup truck. Um, we have more details about it. So Rivian is pretty hyped as a brand. Um, I've spoken about them quite a few times in this podcast. And we've got some more details, uh, more specifics about you know towing and the whole gear tunnel thing that they're going to have and what you can do with the app uh, from a distance from the for the vehicle and all that sort of stuff. Um, this article has kind of a breakdown of all that news there. Nothing really there that I wanted to go go into deeply in the podcast, but I want to just point your attention to that in case you're one of those people very interested in the Rivian pickup truck. So we have more good news. Chevy has officially released their software change or the software update for the battery fires that they were experiencing or what, that they had a risk of for a while for the Chevy Bolt. Um, and again, they, they had basically done a software patch that limited the total battery capacity that you could use, but they offered, or they guaranteed that they would have a software patch that totally got rid of the fire risk and would restore the entire battery pack for the user. And that's out. So they've delivered on that promise. You do have to go to a dealership to uh, get that software patch installed. Um, they've still kind of held out on the over-the-air updates. But um, but it's great news. They've got that software patch, and I think that that's um, one of the big benefits of very heavily software-integrated vehicles that we're seeing with electric vehicles is that you can fix a lot of the problems with software. 
And it's, it's pretty exciting to see that kind of proving its worth over time. It seemed like it might be a bit of a, a fluke based on Tesla. Just maybe this is just one of those things that they do differently. But I think we've seen these sorts of things from, from other companies a couple times now. And it's really showing its worth across the industry and not just as a niche thing for Tesla, which I think is absolutely fantastic news. So good job on, on Chevy. Um, that's a pretty quick turnaround. I think the problem was noticed in October of last year or something. So that's relatively quick for a pretty major, what I'm assuming is a pretty major change. So moving along, GM has their Altium powertrain. So that's the whole skateboard um, design for their, their electric vehicles. And it's got the battery pack and the motors and all that sort of stuff. Well, they officially have plans to have a dedicated company that will recycle their battery uh, scraps basically from manufacturing. So this isn't any post-consumer battery recycling. So this isn't, you know, you, let's take your electric vehicle back and and uh, once those batteries are done, we'll recycle them. This is purely the scrap from the battery pack manufacturing. But the company, um, the Canadian company LI Cycle or Lithium Cycle, I guess is, is how it's supposed to be pronounced. Um, they are slated to recycle up to 100% of the scrap from the battery pack manufacturing. Which is pretty, you know, that's pretty good. You get a lot of scrap in manufacturing, depending on, on the manufacturing type especially. Um, and they're trying to reuse, reuse all that and conserve resources. I think that's really, really good. Uh, one of the, the common complaints about lithium-ion batteries is that lithium and cobalt both have pretty um, negative environmental concerns with them, with the mining. So if you can reuse that in a sustainable way, that's pretty pretty huge benefit all around. Stops GM from having to go source more lithium or more cobalt or more nickel or whatever they're using um, and having issues with. And it also stops the environmental concerns, or at least it lessens them. So that's fantastic news. Uh, hopefully they move towards the post-consumer stuff as well. But, you know, that's six to eight, ten years from, from being necessary anyway, so they've got time. So a small news item here, Madrid has uh, their, their transit agency. They have ordered 50 electric buses from uh, Irizar, which is a company I'm not very familiar with, and the company BYD. So 50 electric buses is pretty big. Um, I love to hear these deployment stories. And that's all I've really got to say about that. I love love these deployment stories. And uh, and I think it's, it's exciting to hear about all these different cities and countries around the world um, <laughs> deploying electric transit buses. It's a very big deal. And we'll see a lot more of it in the future. And it's always going to be exciting. So I've got a couple items about Electrify America for you. Um, just one little factoid is that they have crossed the 600 charger installation mark over the last three years. So this is charging locations. This actually comes out to um, a couple thousand plugs for like individual uh, cars to plug in. But um, yeah, they've installed 600 charges across the last three years, which is pretty good. Um, it's not enough. It's not enough for, for what we need in the United States. But uh it's a pretty pretty big number, and it's you know two hundred chargers a year is is one charger every like what day and a half or so somewhere around that ballpark. So it's pretty exciting. Um, but more interesting news from them is that they have released a plan to invest two hundred million dollars in electric vehicle infrastructure, ports, port electrification, and EV education. Now this is all directed at California. So there is an entire plan. You can find the plan um, it linked from the article that is in the show notes, and it's a pretty long plan, but there is an executive summary that I do recommend you look at, if you're, especially if you're in California, so you can learn more about what they're doing. Uh, some of the focus areas here I have listed out for you, um, 
The first one is to expand the network of highway fast charging stations and go for higher powered charging, so up to 350 kilowatts, which is very fast. Um, deploying infrastructure to support transit and medium slash heavy duty fleets. Um, new tools and techniques such as site level energy management, energy modeling, so that can get down uh, capital and operational costs, which is a pretty big deal. I think I've talked a little bit about that recently with the megawatt charging stations. Renewable generation for each site so that that can reduce some of the carbon intensity and reduce, hopefully reduce uh, operational costs. Um, I'll just part with pretty particularly interesting brand neutral education and awareness, which is pretty cool, including educational marketing, ride and drives, and direct to consumer messaging through social media. So a bit of marketing going on there. And then supporting zero emission vehicle education and training efforts of other local organizations, such as Velaz, EV Noir, Plug in America and the LA Clean Tech Incubator. So they're hoping to focus on quite a bit of things and, and kind of support the EV industry as a whole in California, which is pretty exciting. So moving right along, Lion Electric, which is a company primarily these days makes um, heavy duty electric vehicles, uh, especially school buses, they're going to be building a manufacturing facility in Illinois. So the first production will occur in 2022 and will eventually produce 20,000 electric school buses per year. And this is a Canadian company, so they're bringing some manufacturing stateside, uh, potentially get around some Buy America requirements where um, certain mandated fleets have to buy from American companies and cannot buy from foreign companies. And there's a whole thing there. So that might be the motivation there, but either way, it's jobs in America, and it is electric vehicles on the road, so pretty big win. We've got a bunch of battery stuff for you. To lead the charge, we've got Ford, who we finally know will officially start building batteries in 2025, or at least they plan to, and they'll be partnering with BMW for some solid-state technology. This article is very scant on much in the way of actual details, but... This is kind of wrapping up a bit of a saga over the last few episodes of like, Ford doesn't want to build batteries. Well, Ford's considering building batteries. Well, Ford sees that now there's a lot of demand for this, so they're going to definitely look at batteries. And then they have their innovation lab for batteries, and now they're officially going to be building batteries. So we've, we've kind of buttoned that one up. Um, I guess it officially closes as a story whenever they start producing batteries, but I thought there was a little bit of, um, a little bit of irony in that. Um, if a company is going to be starting some lithium production for batteries in California, now this is a pretty big deal to bring some lithium production and um, just raw material production here in the States. We don't really get too much of that. Um, and it's a big push towards getting lithium and cobalt production here in the States to avoid some of the environmental concerns of doing it abroad. So this is a pilot plant, um, but its goal is to prove the feasibility of a larger plant that can hopefully support up to 70,000 electric vehicles per year, which is not a huge number, but it's it's not insignificant. And that comes out to a total of 5,000 tons of lithium production per year. So directly to dwarf that number, we have Vulcan Energy Resources, which is a company that plans to mine and produce lithium deposits in Germany from beneath the, mine, the Rhine River, I should say. Uh, this is a two billion U.S. dollar investment in total, and by 2025, they hope to produce 40,000 tons per year of lithium. So that is 8,000 times or eight times more than um, than the the pilot plant in California will hopefully produce. Um, so a factor of eight increase there is pretty significant. That's like 560,000 electric vehicles per year. So pretty significant manufacturing there. And Europe uh, has has announced some pretty big plans to. Um, get with the program when it comes to producing lithium and such 
in the EU. So this kind of goes right into that. So we have um, we have an article that goes into a general overview of just how we can use second life electric vehicle batteries for grid storage and kind of just talks about how how good of a fit that is. Um, just if you if you're not really aware of that sort of transition, whenever electric vehicle batteries <laughs> aren't quite as useful for vehicles, they they do have quite a lot of use left in them. And one of the attractive things to do with them is to use them as grid storage for the the actual electric grid. And this article kind of gives a pretty good general overview of that process and kind of why it's so attractive. So if you're just interested in some light reading there, I definitely recommend that article. We also have a study that goes into the differences between hydrogen and pure electrification uh, in transportation and basically discusses how we should use each technology most effectively to get the best bang for our buck when it comes to carbon emissions. Now, the TLDR on here is that heavy duty is a better fit for hydrogen and light duty is a better fit for electrification, which I don't think is a very big surprise to anybody at all. However, it's nice to have these sorts of studies to really support those claims, because I think that's pretty intuitively obvious, or at least uh, I feel like it's, it's intuitively obvious. Um, but, you know, data is, is really important here. So definitely check out that article if you're interested in kind of reading more about that. There is a one and a half hour video from Sandy Monroe where he gives a presentation for uh, charged EVs. And he talks basically about next generation EV tech. And it's kind of long and rambly, but I find it I found it relatively entertaining. Uh, it talks a little bit about vertical takeoff and landing technologies, different battery technologies and solid state versus the um, the new form factor that Tesla's going with. It kind of talks a lot about that, some of that sort of stuff. So pretty interesting video, maybe uh, worth watching at a, a higher speed than just one X, at least at least I did, but um, but always worth worth sharing those videos. So we have another news item. Uh, this one is is quite near and dear to my heart. We have a cooperative called Drive Electric USA, which is basically a cooperative of clean cities coalitions, so one of which I work for. And we basically got a grant fairly recently to have this huge organizational push towards electric vehicle education and electric vehicle planning across several states across the United States. Um, and we were in the news. We had a, There was an article that it was kind of funny I came across during my, my daily news reading. I didn't even know that we were going to be um, in, in this article at all. So it was pretty fun whenever I opened up a Clean Technica article that was about a program that I'm pretty involved in. So if you're interested in that sort of overview, uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. You can see if your state's included. It, it does include 14 states. I won't list them all out here for you today, though. So I thought that was nice to see in, in the news. So we have another study for you today. A study came out about the state of the electric vehicle industry and its grid impacts. So nothing here is a huge surprise. It does point out that um, the state of the industry has kind of moved from shorter range vehicles to longer range vehicles being most popular. Um, the grid impacts have been pretty small so far, and it kind of does some projecting. So if you're into that sort of reading, definitely worth looking over. But I don't have any real high level takeaways for you, at least not right now. And the last bit of news from the electric vehicle uh, topics is that Tesla will no longer accept Bitcoin due to environmental concerns. This was announced via Elon uh, on Twitter, of course. So whenever they announced that they were going to accept Bitcoin, um, I made a pretty big deal 
out of how stupid that is or how stupid I feel that is um, on this podcast because of the incredible environmental concerns associated with Bitcoin. And they're backing down from that. So there's a whole statement in the tweet. Um, I'll just read it out for you real quick. So Tesla has suspended vehicle purchasing using Bitcoin. We are concerned about rapidly increasing use of fossil fuels for Bitcoin mining and transactions, especially coal, which has the worst emissions of any fuel. Cryptocurrency is a good idea on many levels, and we believe it has a promising future, but this cannot come at great cost to the environment. Tesla will not be selling any Bitcoin, and we intend to use it for transaction as soon as mining transactions as mining transitions sorry, to more sustainable energy. We are also looking at other cryptocurrencies that use less than 1% of Bitcoin's energy per transaction. So I'm glad they made that move. Um, I think it's terrible how long it took them to make that move, but we're there and I guess we're better for it. So um, that does make me happy that we finally, we've finally gotten past that. So, speaking of Bitcoin, we're going to move on to the electric grid part of the, the podcast. And the first news item for you is that a power plant has recently been recommissioned purely to be used at, for a Bitcoin farm. So, this company has decided to recommission a natural gas power plant just to <laughs> just power their Bitcoin farm. It's, it's almost hilarious, honestly. Um, so, this is a big deal. It is the Green Ridge Power Plant in upstate New York that is being recommissioned, and it has been recommissioned by the private equity firm Atlas Holdings. Now, uh, this is a big deal. This is a very, very big deal. Because one of the big arguments against saying that uh, Bitcoin doesn't have a big environmental impact is to say that most Bitcoin is farmed using renewable energy, right? Which, even if that's true, I've got a whole thing there that I won't bother ranting about here. But this is a pretty pretty big indictment against that that as an argument, right? This company literally found it worth it to spend an incredible amount of money to re-up a natural gas power plant purely for Bitcoin farming. Currently, this is a natural gas power plant that is producing 85 megawatts of electricity, again, purely for Bitcoin farming, um, and they're hoping to ramp that up to 500 megawatts of electricity by 2025. That is absolutely massive. Um, I just think this is a really big deal. And I, I don't know, I don't know much about the laws regulating electric power plants. I know that they, they definitely exist, obviously. The EPA monitors that stuff pretty closely uh, for various emissions. But I, do, does that apply to non-utility run electricity generation? I just genuinely don't know. How closely is that stuff monitored? Who knows, right? Um, this is a $65 million project for them to, to purchase and convert it to natural gas, uh, purchase this plant and convert it to natural gas. And the fact that they're seeing that being beneficial is just, it's just really absurd to me. And it, it makes me scared that this stuff's going to happen more often and really offset a lot of the, the great work we've done to reduce our carbon emissions. And just as a last little thing there, it does make me wonder, you know, the United States does have the EPA. We do monitor electricity generation pretty tightly and regulate it. Um, I know people might argue that we don't regulate it closely enough, and that's a whole discussion on its own, but we do regulate it fairly tightly. Now, what about other countries that don't regulate it quite as tightly? Um, you know, if the regulations increase for this sort of um, independently run non-utility power plant, 
then what's going to stop them from opening a power plant in a country that doesn't regulate their electricity growth, um, their electricity generation, or maybe needs that economic growth in their country and is happy to offer incentives and kind of just who cares about the emissions we're getting, you know, our economy boosted. It's just kind of a, it's a scary situation to be in. And, uh, and I hope that we, we get our, our hands around this pretty soon. Uh, I am linking two articles in the show notes about this um, particular topic, just because I've, I've found them both to be interesting for different reasons. The Ars Technica article is probably the easiest to read, just kind of a quick overview. And then the Grist one goes into a little bit more detail. So I urge you to look at that. It's pretty, um, it's pretty interesting stuff. So moving right along, um, some fishing groups, so commercial fishing groups in Maine, are protesting offshore wind. So basically doing this over environmental and economic concerns that offshore wind is going to ruin their fishing season. And I don't really know what to say about that. Um, I, I hope that all wind farms, offshore wind farms, go through intensive environmental reviews um, in order to ensure that they don't have negative effects on the ecology, or at least not significant negative effects. Um, but I think this is a pretty legitimate concern. I don't know a huge amount about it personally. This is not something I work with very closely, and I'd like to learn more about it. But um, but I'm putting an article in show just because this is something that I hadn't considered too deeply before before reading about this in this article, and um, and I think it's worth keeping in mind. Again, like like I've said sometimes in the last episode um, about going on native lands and that sort of stuff for pumped hydro. It's like you you can't you know we can't just go for low carbon fuels at the expense of everything else and just, you know, who cares what the consequences. We need to consider everything and try to get it right uh, this time around and not keep cleaning up our past mess in the future. So definitely something to consider, and I'm looking forward to doing some more research about offshore wind and, and ecological and economic impacts on fishing. And then, again, more electric grid news, and it is not positive. Um, it's an article that went over a lot of the Issues we're having with nuclear power plants being retired um, in recent years and upcoming. So we are looking at 8 gigawatts of nuclear power being retired in the near future. That's slated to be retired. And it's just not really good. Um, nuclear, ex especially existing nuclear that you don't have to build, uh, is very, very low carbon. And we need to hit climate goals. So just taking that offline is not particularly good. Um, even if it's replaced by renewable energy, you know, that renewable power could have been replacing coal or natural gas that is currently running. So I don't love this. So just to, to briefly summarize a little section from the article, it makes the assumption that these retirements will be replaced by natural gas fire generation, which is not necessarily um, a given. But if you just make that assumption, this will be equivalent to adding about 39 million metric tons per year of CO2 emissions, which is 2% of 2016 levels. And this is according to Platt Analytics. That's pretty big. <laughs> 39 million tons per year of CO2 emissions. That's just a massive, massive amount of, of emissions. And uh, yeah, that's just not great news. I don't have much positive to say about it. Um, hopefully... You know, the renewables ramp up quickly enough to offset that, and that it's not being replaced by natural gas fire generation. But that remains to be seen. So I do have some happy news for you. So moving on to some other fuels, we have another topic that is a bit near and dear to me. A renewable diesel plant will be built in Louisiana. It just got um just got approved. 
And there was a big uh, whole ceremony thing with the Louisiana governor who went out to the site and was in the article and all that. You can read about that in the show notes. But the long and short of it is that this plant will produce 32 million gallons of renewable diesel per year. Uh, That's pretty big. This will offset approximately 345,000 tons of greenhouse gas emissions per year, which is a 78 or so percent reduction over traditional diesel. Um, Again, that's absolutely massive. Uh, I did that that offset approximation with A-Fleet and compared it, um, assuming that they're using it in long-haul trucking, which is, it doesn't matter a huge amount for the greenhouse gas emissions reductions, but just, just for clarity's sake. Um, and then I've got a quote from the article here that's just got some details on it, which I think is interesting. Um, Louisiana Green Fuels, which is the name of the company doing the plant, will make a capital investment of at least $700 million through the project. Along with the cash, 76 new direct jobs will be created, and these jobs will have an annual salary of over $68,000 along with benefits. Louisiana Economic Development estimated that the project will result in an additional 412 new indirect jobs, which totals almost 500 new jobs in Caldwell Parish, which is where it's being built. The building phase is planned to take at least 30 months and will generate another 450 construction jobs. So pretty good economic impact here. And I've spoken a lot, um, and I will continue to speak a lot, about how transitioning away from fossil fuels will result in losing jobs, especially in the oil and gas sector, and this affects my state quite significantly. And renewable diesel and biodiesel offer a chance to, to avoid some of that and to keep some of those jobs in Louisiana and still meet our climate goals, um, if not re- reach them even faster, because these are really good fuels. Um, renewable diesel, uh, again, you really need to do a dedicated episode on, on this fuel and biodiesel, but the long and short of it is that it's chemically identical to traditional diesel. However, it comes from waste oil, so stuff like tallow or cooking oil or soy oil and that sort of stuff. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, It's a lot of fuel, and it's going to be produced here in Louisiana, and I think that that's excellent. And then in the same sort of vein, the DOE, the United States Department of Energy, has announced $63 million in biofuel research, um, research grants, I should say. Uh, The deadline has passed on this, but I love these funding announcements. They make me very happy, um, especially when they focus on biofuels and that sort of stuff that doesn't get quite as much press. And the projects that come out of these are always really exciting. So our last section of the day is policy, as usual. So the first thing I want to talk about is um, Oklahoma. Oklahoma is considering some laws regarding electric vehicles, and this includes road usage fees and taxes for charging. So one of the items um, that's being considered is to start a task force to explore road usage fees and find reasonable implementation. So road usage fees are where you charge drivers for the actual driving on the road, um, as opposed to charging them, you know, road tax by way of a gas tax or something similar to that. Um, I think that's a really cool approach that they're starting a task force to look at it and try to find reasonable ways to implement this sort of thing that don't overcharge or undercharge. And maybe they can get around some of the issues with having a regressive tax where, you know, this decentivizes economic movement in a lot of ways, you know, because you kind of want people driving around to some degree because that that moves money around and, and there are benefits to that. So regressive taxes are always a bit of a, they're a bit complicated. Um, and then they can try to find ways to factor in uh, vehicle weight without decentivizing electric vehicle adoption, um, but still taking into account like large trucks are really heavy and that sort of stuff. It's a really complicated issue in, in starting this sort of task force, if done correctly to do the study, 
I think it's a really great approach. I love that they're not just kind of diving in and, and doing something stupid <laughs> at the outset. Um, going into it slowly and, and taking your time, trying to find the right way to do it, that's a, a really reasonable goal. And I hope that uh, I hope that bears that bears fruit for them. And then the other thing that they're considering is called the Drive Act, which would enact a three cent per kilowatt hour tax for charging at specifically for-profit public chargers. So there would be no charging tax for home charging, and no charging tax for any nonprofit charging, which is quite interesting. Now, if you're looking at this on a per mile basis, a tax per mile, it's about one cent per mile, which is pretty much perfectly in line with what a gas tax is in Oklahoma. So in the article, it didn't specify if this is a state tax or federal tax, or if there would be any federal tax levied here. Um, so I went ahead and looked at the total gas tax, which is uh, 38 cents per gallon split between federal and state. Um, and yeah, it came out to like 1.2 cents per mile versus the one cent per mile um, from from charging. So I think that's a very reasonable tax. It's exactly on par with what gas tax is. Again, I think it's pretty well implemented, so good idea. And a really interesting part here too is that the Drive Act would also include an income tax credit for EV owners to refund those charging taxes. So the income tax credit would go up to, um, but not exceeding the registration fee. And it's kind of a way to give back the, um, the charging tax. And one of the stated reasons for this from the article, if I read it correctly, is basically to say that they want to capture um, road usage fees for people who are from out of state and traveling through the state, but not necessarily punish the people who live in the state. So that kind of seems like that's, that's one of their ways around that, which is pretty interesting. Um, income tax credits can be done well and they can be done poorly. So that's going to depend a lot on implementation, if it's non-refundable or refundable and that sort of stuff. But again, this kind of tax credit thing to, to recoup a little bit of that and not exceed the registration fee, I think is, again, pretty reasonable approach to it overall. Now, I'm not very plugged in to the, the political situation in, in Oklahoma. I'm not as familiar with these sorts of things. So I can't speak too, uh, too strongly about that. But this seems like a pretty overall decent plan. Um, so I'd love to see it. And then moving on and speaking of places that I'm not intimately familiar with, uh, Washington State's Clean Cars 2030 legislation that they were looking at, and that I think I talked about maybe last episode, um, it's been vetoed by the governor, and specifically vetoed because it includes a road usage fee, which I was just talking about from Oklahoma. I've got a direct quote from the governor which I think explains his point very clearly. It says, Section 6 of the bill ties a very important goal of electrifying our transportation sector to the implementation of a road usage charge program. Transportation is our state's greatest source of carbon emissions, and we cannot afford to link an important goal like getting to 100% zero emission vehicles to a separate policy that will take time to design and implement. Um, I think it's a really reasonable quote. I don't think that pushing this back one year to the next legislative session will um, substantively decrease the effectiveness of Clean Cars 2030. Um, and yeah, pushing it back and trying to do the road usage fee correctly, if they do it at all, is a pretty good move. Again, just like I mentioned with Oklahoma, um, it's a very complicated thing to implement, and doing it right the first time is a good idea. Uh, so I think that surprised pretty much everybody that Clean Cars 2030 was vetoed, but Upon looking at, at his kind of quote, and there's a longer quote in the article that you can check out, but looking at the quote and thinking about it, yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with that decision. So I guess we'll see next legislative session um, how that goes. 
And the last news item I have for you today is from California's Air Resources Board, who have proposed an EV ruling that would require 80% electric vehicles by 2035. So um, this backs down slightly from the 100% by 2035 uh, goal that was previously stated, um, but not, not passed as far as I'm aware. Um, an interesting thing here is that they do have consideration for plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. So plug-in hybrids would satisfy the requirement of 80% EVs, but they have to have an electric range of 50 miles or more. So it has to be a longer range electric uh, plug-in hybrid, which is interesting. And then plug-in hybrids can only make up 20% of an automaker's compliance level. So automakers have to match this 80% of sales being electric by 2035, and only 20% of their compliance can be by plug-in hybrids. So that's kind of an interesting way to implement that. And then it'll be a credit system, just like all other CARB systems. They kind of stated that this is kind of the state of, of the art for them, and it's worked well in the past, and they're going to keep up with it. So this sort of credit system would work a lot like um, a lot like the credits I was talking about earlier with Fiat, Chrysler, and Tesla, where you can kind of purchase credits between companies and kind of average everything out nicely. So it again, it seemed to work pretty well for them in the past, and looks like they're going to keep up with it in the future, because if it's not broken, then, then let's stick with it. So that is all I have for you this time around. So I do hope to get back to a weekly schedule in the near future so that uh, I don't have to have these very long episodes like this. And if you have any questions about anything I talked about or want to discuss it further, again, you can contact me any way you know how to or on Twitter at ArchDukeTyler. I welcome any feedback that you might have, good or bad or otherwise, and hope you enjoyed. Thank you for listening. And... You can listen again next time around, whenever uh, you obviously listen again. What's the line again? Something like, a, uh, what's, what's the alternative, right? Yeah, there it is. What's the alternative?